Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Blue Marble Podcast, where I talk about ways to put your green faith into action and to manifest good magic for the planet. I'm your host, Rev. Shar Bear with Circle Sanctuary, Green Faith, and the Climate Reality Project. As always, I want to give a big shout out to all you eco-warriors out there who work to honor and protect this blue marble planet with all its wonderful diversity and biodiversity. Thank you to all of you out there who are standing up, taking action, speaking truth to power, guarding and defending our sacred earth and the most vulnerable communities among us, both human and non-human. I hope this podcast continues to educate and to motivate. For those of you listening in, Circle Sanctuary is North America's largest and most established nature-based faith organization. It's a growing network representing different eco-spirituality traditions, and it is deeply committed to eco-activism and eco-justice as part of its mission and vision. We are also a sponsoring Circle with Green Faith, a growing international and interfaith climate justice movement. Today, we're going to be looking at just transitions as understood through the development of a loss and damage fund. And in the interest of keeping it real, I'm going to share with you what I think you should know about loss and damage and why the heck it matters. Unlike many of my other podcasts, this episode is not so much about what you can do right now as it is about understanding loss and damage as a driving concept and keeping it on your radar as things develop. So in the climate justice world, the idea of just transitions, it's talked about a lot, and it's usually talking about how to move from our dependency upon fossil fuels, which mean coal, oil, gas, and their derivatives, how to move from our dependency on those to alternative, more sustainable sources of energy, green energy. And as communities transition, a just transition ensures that we are making sure we provide equity in supporting frontline communities to recover from the impacts of climate change and that we are including people from those frontline and mostly affected communities in the very decision-making process about what transitions are needed and how they will be accomplished. Well, on a global level, this is a huge issue, certainly. Globally, just transition includes figuring out how we practically are going to help the nations or global communities that have been most impacted by climate change. What does that mean? How is it going to be accomplished? And who is going to be accountable for what exactly? So in common usage, climate change describes global warming. And that's the ongoing increase in global average temperature and its effects on Earth's climate system. So it's not simply a matter of weather. Climate change, in a broader sense, includes previous long-term changes to Earth's climate. And the current rise in global average temperature is more rapid than previous changes and is primarily caused by humans burning fossil fuels, along with deforestation and industrialized agriculture, all creating massive amounts of greenhouse gases, notably carbon dioxide and methane, that are polluting the Earth's atmosphere unnaturally, treating it essentially as an open sewer. And the fact is that the richer countries of the world, the so-called developed countries, are the biggest emitters 
of greenhouse gases. These are the countries that are creating this runaway train problem, polluting with impunity so far. Meanwhile, the smaller, poorer, so-called developing countries are producing zero to tiny nominal amounts of greenhouse gases, but they are almost invariably suffering the greatest climate change impact so far, many of which are devastating ancestral cultures and sacred lands as people are forced to flee storms, hurricanes, mudslides, fires, droughts, etc., caused by climate change. So this is a glaring and growing inequity that the communities most harmed so far are not the polluters so often, but they are those forced to endure climate disaster and who become the most vulnerable climate refugees. So that's the problem, because for over 30 years, 30, 30 years, the vulnerable developing countries who were first led by small Pacific Island states who were suffering from rising sea levels and storms, they have been demanding the creation of a fund for loss and through the UN to help deal with the impacts of human-induced climate change. And for over 30 years, since 1991, this has been a request. It's been an increasing demand as we have seen more and more how frequent and dramatic are these impacts? I mean, you see it every day on the news. If you're paying any attention at all, you don't have to look far. The conversation always up till now has been thwarted by the rich developed countries who have up till now refused even to discuss it until COP27 last year. With the IPCC report, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's IPCC in 2021, the scientific community for the first time provided unequivocal evidence of climate change impacts that are due to emissions of greenhouse gases since the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, it's been a phenomenon of the modern age of colonialism, industrialism, and beyond this problem. And the IPCC report included information about who is in fact doing most of the polluting, who is most harmed by that pollution, and such reporting led to the developing countries demanding the setting up of a finance facility for loss and damage. So they made this demand in a big way at COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, back in November 2021. But once again, any urgency to do that set up for that facility for loss and damage, it was thwarted by the developed countries who instead committed to hmm, a three-year program of talk about it but still no action. So the discussion was a placebo only, really. Well, enter another tipping point in 2022 when uh, the devastating floods in Pakistan were uh, observed throughout the world. Um, clearly, these were attributed by scientists as having been doubled in their impact directly because of climate change. And after the floods, Pakistan demanded funding from the developed polluting countries. At COP27, this demand finally did make it into the agenda, which was an achievement in and of itself. And what followed was two weeks of intensive negotiations because all countries involved had to agree to establish a fund for addressing loss and damage and to get it done by COP28, which is in Dubai in 2023. So 
what this signifies is that the global community through the United Nations has now stepped into the era of loss and damage. And this step is historic, but we have to make it count. It's got to be real and not just more blah, 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 to quote Greta Thunberg. This was a first acknowledgement, and our job is now to understand the moral imperative and to make sure our home country ups its game to respond to the challenge and makes good on its promises. So just backing up for a sec, what is COP27? Well, the United Nations has an annual climate conference called a COP, and there have been 27 of them, hence COP26, COP27, and so on. COP28 is coming up later this year, which at the time of this recording is 2023. When we talk about adaptation, well, what is adaptation exactly? What do we mean by that? And in nature, you know, ecosystems and species, they kind of have three options, prevention, mitigation, and adaptation. Um, prevent, challenge, or change from happening. And if you can't, that, that's the best. Prevent it from happening in the first place. Yay, if it's, if it's a negative change. But if you can't prevent it from happening, then mitigate it. And mitigating is minimizing the negative impacts of those changes as much as possible. If you can't mitigate anymore because you're beyond that point, then your choice is simply to adapt to those changes as best you can. And if you cannot adapt, then the outcome is likely extinction. Why we have so much species extinction is because other species are no longer able to adapt to changes, many of which we are imposing upon them. And the conversation we hear about these days is how to mitigate the impacts of climate change that we have already caused with our out of control pollution, or how might we prevent further pollution or how might we even reverse the effects of pollution? It would be awesome if restoration and regeneration were equally viable options, right? And increasingly, we are putting plans in place to adapt to climate change when our other options are no longer likely or possible. So it is a position of privilege I have to acknowledge for myself, for any of us living in a way that does not force us to have to fight for our lives, our livelihood, our homes, our families, or to have to flee our homes or ancestral lands or sacred communities because of climate change impacts. It is a position of privilege if we don't have to do that. My family has been a climate refugee within my own state of California once. And I know that there are many listening to this podcast right now who have your own climate impact stories. And there are increasing numbers of climate refugees around the world who are forced to relocate because their home or homelands are no longer habitable. And beyond the human communities, so many plants and animals are struggling to adapt. So the United Nations has an environment program. It's called UNEP, U-N-E-P. And in 2022, they released an adaptation gap report. 
And that report found that efforts in adaptation planning, financing, implementation are not keeping pace with the growing risks. So the reality today is that countries that made commitments at the Paris Agreement back in 2015 that are supposed to be guiding their decisions are potentially going to need over 300 billion US dollars per year by 2030. Hear that again. Countries are going to need the equivalent of over 300 billion US dollars per year by 2030 to meet the world's adaptation needs. Today, the funding gap is huge and international adaptation finance flows to developing countries hardest hit five to 10 times below the estimated needs. So this means that we're not seeing enough implementation of projects that help to overcome disaster, that help to restore, help to build back better. We're not demanding sufficient fundraising from polluters, especially. UNEP has been very partial to projects that do what I just mentioned, which is actually restore national ecosystems, promote nature-based solutions like, oh, you know, restoring peatlands, uh, restoring forests, including sea kelp forests. Um, these are particularly effective because they sequester carbon, they store and filter water, they protect against extreme weather events. And basically <laughs> by destroying nature, we have helped to drive climate change and we've reduced the ability of the natural world to shield us against climate impacts. So what we all talk about in nature-based religions, of course, is if we can better ally with nature by understanding how it works, by walking with humility, by conserving and restoring ecosystems, and by working with communities who have ancient earth wisdom, then we will go a long way to solving the adaptation and mitigation challenges that the world is facing today and tomorrow. But all of this takes money. And this also means seriously promoting those earthwise ways of indigenous communities and supporting those communities with money so that they can promote those earthwise ways, both the continental and island communities. They're not the polluters. And yet they know best how to ally with nature and have much to teach the rest of us. So, you know, while we're talking about it, let's be clear, who are the worst polluters? Well, the so-called G20 countries represent around 75% of global greenhouse emissions. So 20 countries represent about 75% of the entire world's greenhouse gas emissions right now. And the top 10 countries with the highest greenhouse gas emissions are the following. I'm gonna name the country and I'm gonna name the million metric tons of greenhouse gas they emitted in 2019. That's the most recent data. So China was the first, 9,877 metric tons. USA, second, 4,745 metric tons million, million metric tons of greenhouse gas. India, 2,310 million metric tons of greenhouse gas. Russia, 1,640 million metric tons. Japan, 1,056 million metric tons. Germany, 644 million metric tons. South Korea, 586 million metric tons. Iran, 583 million metric tons. Canada, 
571 million metric tons. And 10, Saudi Arabia, 495 million metric tons. So, lest you be fooled, the top three countries doing the most greenhouse gas emissions as of 2019 data, and it hasn't changed much since then, are China, USA, and India. And noting that China is almost double million metric tons of the USA, and the USA is almost double million metric tons of India. And everybody else on that list is significantly less, as you heard, with Russia and Japan coming in about half of what India does. So China, USA, and India, China and USA, yeah. And in the USA, you know, just for the record, the breakdown of causes of greenhouse gas, this data comes from 2020, uh, still very much the case today in 2023. Uh, the breakdown of causes of greenhouse gases at transportation that is fossil fueled uh, from oil, gas, diesel. So fossil fuel based dependent transportation is 27% of greenhouse gases the USA emits. Electricity that's coming from coal and natural gas is 25%. So fossil fueled electricity is another 25%. So just between those two together, you're looking at like 52% of greenhouse gases the US emits. Industrial manufacturing is 24%. And then industrial agriculture is 11%. Commercial heating and cooking is 7%. And residential heating and cooking, like what you do at your house, is 6%. So when the big fossil fuel companies want to make you feel incredibly responsible for your personal choices at home, understand that everything that's been happening amounts to about 6% from your home use. They're wanting to distract you from the fact that they're fueling the transportation, electricity, and industry sectors are the lion's share of all the greenhouse gases, right? So that's a clear picture. So as a side note, also, when you're thinking about putting personal practices into action as part of your spiritual practice, um, transitioning to a hybrid or EV vehicle, and they're coming, they're coming, transitioning to solar wind, hydroelectricity through home systems or community choice energy green programs, solar and wind being the most prominent, transitioning to a more plant-based diet. These are in fact the most impactful. So if you're making resolutions and you want to know what can I really, really be doing to really, you know, lower my greenhouse gases, my carbon footprint and make an impact in my personal choices, Look at transitioning to EV vehicles, look at transitioning to solar or wind for, for your house, and look at um, transitioning to a more plant-based diet or organic diet. And those are things you can be doing right now to reduce your emission or carbon footprint. Uh, I can tell you at our home, we've been working on all three of these, and we're not rich. We're part of the 99%, um, but it's doable. Um, there are other Blue Marble podcasts in the archive we have that address these practices, and, and you can look them up and listen to them for, for more of a breakout on those if you like. But back to loss and damage now as part of just transition. What if you're from a community in a country that is not heavily invested? You know, what if you're from a community in a country that's not heavily invested in fossil fuels for transportation? 
or for energy? Or what if you're from a community or a country that's not especially industrialized? You're not hosting massive factory farms and plantations. Then you're likely today to be an extremely low emissions emitting community. And what the UN is telling us, sadly, what the IPCC report is telling us, sadly, and is that you're probably more often in places that are weathering the worst impacts of climate change that you did not cause. No fair. And you are apparently more likely not to have the economy or resources available to help you to rebuild after a disaster, to build back better with more resilience against further climate impacts so that you don't have to become a climate refugee. The African continent, for example, that's an example. The African continent contributes the least to climate change, and yet it is the most vulnerable to its impacts. African countries are on record that they contribute so little, and yet they would have to spend up to five times more on adapting to the climate crisis than on their own health care. Pakistan has seen, oh gosh, over 30 billion in U.S. dollars in damages from those severe floods I mentioned, but it emitted less than 1% of global emissions that very year. I mean, really, how many other countries, especially among the G20, are opening their arms to embrace climate refugees from African countries or from Pakistan, for example? Worse, how many of those citizens from Africa or Pakistan, for example, actually want to leave their homeland, want to leave their ancestral lands, want to leave their heritage? You know, how many have already endured generational trauma? From colonization that is now made worse by climate change. So these are the dimensions of the harsh equity on a global scale that loss and damage is trying to address. So what is loss and damage exactly then? Is it reparation? Well, no, because it's not just payment for past wrongs. It has to be investment in development and resilience going forward. Is it compensation? Well, not exactly, because again, these countries are not getting paid for their suffering or something. It's not charity. So loss and damage begins as a guiding principle, admitting a reality that hasn't been admitted on the global stage. The United Nations Environmental Program, UNEP, defines loss and damage as the negative consequences that arise from the unavoidable risks of climate change like rising seas, like prolonged heat waves, like desertification, like acidification of the sea, like extreme events, you know, bushfires, fires, wildfires, species extinction, crop failures, all of these things we get to watch in the news and see on a global scale. And as the climate crisis unfolds, loss and damage is becoming a universal guiding principle. This requires accountability. So loss and damage, first and foremost, has to be an acknowledgement by the biggest polluter countries that they in fact are the source of the problem. The reason countries like ours here in the USA have not wanted to adapt a loss and damage fund is because we then have to admit that we're culpable, that our country is in fact responsible for a large part of the pollution that is literally altering the climate of the planet with catastrophic consequences far beyond our borders. That's painful. It's hard to admit. And I'm not talking about you and me, listeners. 
But yes, I include many of our elected officials, the climate deniers, those who are basically bought by fossil fuel, by ConAg, you know, it's hard enough within our own Congress to get the consistent majority political will to admit that climate change is real and to begin to mitigate and plan for adaptation. And this has been putting many of our own communities at risk for too long right here in our own country. But our responsibility goes beyond our own country because the greenhouse gas pollution emitted from our own country is one of the top two largest volumes of greenhouse gases in the world. Yuck. So you and I, you know, if you live modestly like I do, you're not creating that volume of greenhouse gas. But the corporations that dominate our economy, that work hard to lobby, I'm going to say by our politicians who shape policy, who legislate, who govern, who buy our judiciary, who enforce regulatory laws. Yeah, they are what create the barriers to any real progress. Just follow the money. If you ever wondered, just follow the money. It, it, it tells all. And this is why, as part of your earth-loving spiritual practice, it is so essential to do legislative action. You're not violating a 501c3 to speak out as a personal citizen. You're speaking for yourself, right? Put pressure on your elected officials to keep the needle moving in the right direction toward just transitions away from dependency on fossil fuels primarily and to ensure equity and justice. Here, I refer you to two previous episodes of Blue Marble. You'll find it in the archive. One is about climate action now, and one is about green faith powers up. So you can go to the Blue Marble Archive and, and listen to Climate Action Now episode and Green Faith Powers Up. All right. So when it comes to loss and damage, you know who's going to pay? That's always the issue. Who pays? How to fundraise for the loss and damage fund? After COP27 with this historic agreement, finally, that admits loss and damage is needed, that commits to establishing a loss and damage fund with goals to meet by 2024, time-bound. Representatives from 24 countries are supposedly now working together over this next year to decide what form the fund should take, which countries should contribute, where and how the money should be distributed. And under consideration, you know, they're the usual traditional forms of fundraising, but those aren't that interesting to me, frankly. Um, at COP27, various philanthropies and corporations did make commitments to fundraise, but okay, we'll see. Much more interesting to me are the innovative ideas in the think tank, including loss and damage debt swaps or international taxes, a dedicated finance facility. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called for the use of windfall taxes on fossil fuel companies and diverting the money gained from these windfall taxes on fossil fuel companies, diverting that money to people who are struggling with rising food and energy prices, diverting that money to countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis. Oh man, Guterres is a feisty, UN Secretary, he's all over climate change and climate justice. And I love 
how he is pushing to place the responsibility and cost of pollution right on the doorstep of corporations who have created the pollution, right at the source. These massively, massively wealthy fossil fuel corporations, especially, who have known for over 40 years that their business plan is effectively destroying the planet, confirmed by their own internal scientists, and who have maintained disinformation campaigns, who have lied to the public while buying up lobbyists. They, he says, should now be forced through taxes and other means to cough up billions from their obscene profits to fund loss and damage. Nice. So determining exactly how to raise the money, like that, how the fund would be managed, how to determine who's eligible for the funds, all of that stuff, it's supposed to be worked out by about October 2024 at COP29. So if you would like to know more about the Loss and Damage Fund progress, a good source is the UNEP webpage itself at unep.org, unep.org, or browse what you need to know about the COP27 Loss and Damage Fund. I've filtered and distilled a lot of information for you here, but there's lots out there, different organizations giving their, uh, you know, their assessment. Another side note that a lot of Americans um, don't realize, I didn't until I got into climate reality stuff, is that our taxpayer money is still financing subsidies to these very fossil fuel corporations, even while they're making billions and getting away with price gouging us. We really should cease those subsidies now <laughs> and have those funds diverted to green energy research and development and to loss and damage. That is going to be a battle and it will require persistent critical mass pressure by people like you and me to make sure we keep demanding no more subsidies, that we keep demanding divestment from fossil fuels. We keep demanding just transitions, including loss and damage. And while doing that, at the same time, keeping our souls and spirits alive and in tune with our beloved planet by just throwing some love and magic at restoration projects close to home. Love the ecosystem you're in, love your spiritual bioregion, do some constructive things to help it flourish. No little act of love or kindness of conservation or regeneration or good magic is ever wasted, ever. My New Year's resolution is to be a better co-member of creation. Well, that wraps up this installment of Blue Marble Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you value what you've heard here today, please share this information with others. New Blue Marble Podcasts air live on the third Friday of every month and are available for listening anytime after they air through our channel on Blog Talk Radio. Go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash csnp search for blue marble with reg rev charbert and you will find the archive of these podcasts you can click on any you want to hear or download for later listening 
You can also follow our podcasts on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash CSNP podcasts. No, that's www.facebook.com slash CSN podcasts. And finally, you can find a complete archive of hundreds of programs by all of our excellent podcasters on the Circle Sanctuary website, which is at www.circlesanctuary.org and look under the CSNP tab. Lots of ways to find us, to listen to us, and to download. So please share. Until next time, this is Charbear signing off. Thank you for all the good you do. Stay true and blue, and hey, hope to see you in the green space.